Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. As we draw closer to our mid-season break, it's been my goal to give you as much first-hand inside information as to what went on at the trials of Jesse, Jason, and Damien, and let you hear from the people who lived it and how it affected their lives. We're going to conclude that three-part series today with the man who, at 19 years old, intrigued the world with his appearance in the movie Paradise Lost. Thousands of people throughout the country identified with Damien Eccles' world. The black clothing, the heavy metal music, and even his interest in religions that were not deemed, quote, traditional, especially in the South. And today, you're about to hear directly from Damien Eccles himself. So, Damien, you were just 19 years old when you first became a suspect in the case that, of course, we all know now as the the West Memphis 3 case. And I guess I'd like to start by talking about your experiences and how this all affected you. You you were questioned, and we talked a little bit about this the last time you were on the show, within hours of the discovery of the bodies. Can we start off first by talking about what was going on as far as how it was affecting you and, and just specifically what was happening in your life? from May 8th when Steve Jones and James Sudbury first came to your house until June 3rd when you were ultimately arrested? I mean, it became uh, the cops. When I say it, I'm talking about the case, the police, everybody involved with it. It became kind of nightmares from that point on. I mean, they they pretty much stomped me. They would uh, park outside of our house, you know, I I believe 24-7, as long as I was awake. There were cop cars parked outside of our house, and they'd do things at night. Like, uh, you know, the big spotlights they have on the side of the, the car doors, they would shine those into the windows to try to wake you up. Uh, it got to the point where they were picking me up or trying to pick me up or picking Jason up or picking Domini up. Uh, one of us. They would, you know, pick one of us every single day to zero in on and, and harass and try to break down in some way. And then whenever, you know, they couldn't do whatever they were wanting to do with that one, then the next day they would move on to the next one. And it was almost like a repeating cycle. So, you know, from the time they found the murders on up until the time that they sent me to prison, uh, they pretty much stalked and harassed me nonstop. Did they pull you in for any official interviews after... It was like the Monday after that first weekend when you did the polygraph and all that. Were there any other official interviews after that, or after that it was just them kind of following you around your house? To be honest, I can't remember when any of the interviews were. 
Some of them were at the house. I mean, they would come to the house. And I pretty much talked to them any time they showed up at the house. You know, they they asked, like, really, you know, fairly innocuous, sort of meaningless questions. They weren't, you know, in the beginning at least, they weren't directly hostile. They weren't aggressive. And then the longer it went on, the more and more and more aggressive they became. So, you know, they would show up at, at my house. Sometimes they would ask me, would I come down to the police station? I went down to the police station. Sometimes it would be... It could be in random places like on the street of Lakeshore, like walking down the street and they pull up next to you and start asking you questions again. So, you know, there were stuff like that going on besides, you know, official interviews that they would have recorded, like in the police station. You know, like I said, it's been, what, 25 years ago for me, something like that. So Mm -hmm. I can't remember what interview was when or anything else. It sort of all just merges together into one big thing for me now. How did it affect your relationships or, or just the community around you? You know, is it, in reading all the police files and everything, it seems like in uh, both Highland and Lakeshore Trailer Park, people were coming out of the woodwork. Were you hearing rumors about yourselves or just having people in the community talking about you during that time? I didn't hear anybody talking about me directly, but I did hear people. I mean, almost immediately, the first thing people started talking about was Satanism and satanic cults and you know, that there had been all these satanic cults active in the area for years, like these, you know, really huge, powerful people carrying out these satanic rituals. I mean, this kind of stuff started almost immediately. And you'd hear about it while you were standing in line at the grocery store. You know, you're waiting to check out with your groceries, and this is what people are talking about. Or, you know, you're walking through the Walmart parking lot, and this is what people are talking about. And people really, that's like in our neighborhood, like especially like around Lakeshore, you would hear like groups of people just standing around talking about it, you know, at the end of their driveway or at the little, you know, the little convenience store at the beginning of the trailer park, wherever it was. I mean, everybody was talking about this. It was like there was no other topic of conversation and some element of almost every one of those conversations had something to do with Satanism in some way or another, even if they weren't bringing my name up. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, the night that you guys were arrested and how that went down. But leading into that, were, were you expecting that at the time? I, mean, I, I knew you knew you were obviously a suspect, but did you have any inclination that you might actually get arrested for this crime? Oh, no. You know, you know, we were kids. We were naive. We thought it's impossible for them to prove you've done something that you haven't done, you know, that, that defies the laws of physics, seemingly. Mm-hmm. So we thought, yeah, there's there's no way in hell that they're going to arrest us because we didn't do this. So, no, we weren't expecting it at all. It was a complete surprise. Uh, whenever they started uh, beating on the door, honestly, I thought they were just coming to question us again. You know, it had become, like I said, an every single day occurrence. So I thought, you know, they're just back for the usual routine. I had no idea that they were about to arrest us. Just details of it, I guess. The the only thing I really remember was uh, we were in my parents' uh, living room. They lived in a trailer park called... uh, Was that Broadway? Broadway Trailer Park. Yeah, Broadway Trailer Park. Yeah, so we were in their living room. It was me, Jason, my sister, and Dominique. And uh, we were watching TV. You know, we weren't thinking anything about, you know, being arrested or anything about the case or anything. We were watching TV and eating snacks or whatever, and that's when they started knocking on the door. Uh, when I opened the door, they 
swarmed in and arrested both of us. Jason told me later, I can't remember when he told me, but he said that they didn't even recognize him at first, that they arrested me, took me out, put me in a cop car, and evidently they were thinking that he was going to be at his house instead of at my house. So they were over at his house going into his place at the same time looking for him. They didn't realize that that's who that was in my living room uh, for a few minutes. Oh, wow. And wasn't there some story where you guys you like shut the lights off or hid in the back room or something like that when they came? Yeah. Yeah. Whenever they started knocking on the door, like I said, I thought it's the same old thing they usually do. And I, I said, you know what? To hell with them. We're not doing this again. We do this every damn day. I don't want to do this again tonight. So we went to the back of the house and let them, you know, stand there and beat on the door till they go away. Went to the back of the house, had no idea, you know, the severity of the situation that they were actually about to arrest us. We thought, just ignore them and they'll give up and go away. Now, did you and Jason go to separate detention centers because he was still a juvenile and you weren't? Yeah, uh, we went to, uh, they sent all three of us to separate jails. And at first... I don't know if they told Jason and, and Jesse or not, but they wouldn't even tell me where I was. So I had no way of even, you know, letting my family know where I was or anything. For a while, I can't remember how long, uh, I couldn't even call out to let anybody know where I was. They were doing everything they could to keep that information undisclosed. Didn't want anybody knowing. But yeah, we all three went to separate jails and we were in there for about nine months each while we waited to go to trial. Now, the night that you were arrested, there's no interview notes or anything from you. Did, did the police question you that night, or did they just lock you in a cell, or how did that experience go? They would try. Uh, they they brought me in and put me in a cell. I mean, it wasn't like a real jail cell. You know, there was no sink. There's no toilet. You know, there's no way to even get a drink of water. This thing was about the size of two phone booths put together, so all you can do is stand there. Uh, it, it's not a jail uh, cell for holding somebody you know, long term, it's for um, basically holding somebody for a, a few minutes while they get ready to fingerprint them or something. So they keep me in there all night. And probably every, I don't know, half an hour or so, they would come in and start saying stuff like, are you ready to make your confession yet? You want to tell us what happened? And I just stood there and looked at them. So they would turn around and walk away. And that would go, that went on all night long. But there was no like official, you know, interview or anything. Leading up to the your arrest and the investigation, at that point, once you were arrested, I assume that you had a, a little shift in attitude about what was going on. Do you think that your attitude towards the police during the, the month before your arrest had any effect on them kind of narrowing in on you as, you, as things went along? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it absolutely did. Uh, and, and it's kind of a cycle that fed on itself. You know, the, kind of the reason that I had the attitude that I did towards the police is because you know, for uh, at least a year, maybe two years before the murders, we had been, you know, just harassed nonstop by Jer uh, Jerry Driver and Steve Jones and uh, that other guy, what was his name? Oh, Murray, you know, just relentless harassment. So it had made us sort of belligerent and aggressive towards them from, you know, messing with us. And it was this repeating cycle. So, yeah, it, it, it didn't help anything at all. So after you were arrested, you had that nine months before trial. Uh, you met your your appointed attorneys during that time. Can you talk about just just that process? I don't think that's anything I've ever heard much about as far as your interactions with your trial attorneys and planning for trial strategy and what what life was like for those nine months in the in the county jail. 
You know, it's one, it's one of those things where there was almost zero planning. I, I want to say that I may have seen my attorneys. Uh, they were court-appointed attorneys. I think I may have seen them, I want to say no more, no more than four or five times, you know, for like an hour at a time leading up to the trial. I mean, not much at all. You have, uh, unless you're paying your attorney where, you know, they have to do what you say and, and, you know, like in our situation, if you have a public defender, you really have very little say in how your trial and how your defense is conducted. And add on top of that, I mean, the people we had were just, you know, so inadequately prepared for the scope and the magnitude of this trial that they did not even know they were going to put me on the stand to testify until a few minutes before they did. That's how little preparation, that's how little planning there was by these people. They asked me right before, (laughs) there was a break right before someone went off the stand and they said, well, do you want to testify? What, you know, what's it going to hurt? I said, sure, let's do it. We never went over what I was going to say, what they were going to ask me, any of that sort of thing. Looking back on it now, do you think it was, it helped you or, I mean, obviously the trial ended up in a conviction, but you know, if you had the rewind machine and you could go back, do you think you should have gotten a stand or, or do you think it helped you or hurt you? I don't think I should have, honestly, in hindsight. I don't, Okay, I think you could look at it one of two ways. I think it hurt me in that moment, right then and right there, because it made it probably like my attitude, the way I was behaving, you know, my aggressiveness towards the entire system, all of that probably didn't make the jury look, you know, any more fondly on me. So that part of it didn't help me. But at the same time, if I wouldn't have testified and they wouldn't have, I mean, you know, that was a huge part of the, the documentaries right? Uh, that would, you know, eventually go on to end up saving my life. I knew in that courtroom, these, these people are trying to murder me. There is very little I can do, very little I can say that's going to change the outcome of what they're doing here. You know, I saw how sort of slanted the process was from the very beginning. So the only thing I'm thinking at that point is, you know, like people say, if you got to go down, then go down swinging. Give it everything you got. So I figured, you know, I got nothing to hide. Put me on the stand. They did. Didn't work out so well in the moment. But, at, you know, like I said, I think it probably eventually ended up contributing to saving my life. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because I think you're right. You know, in the, the intro we recorded before getting you on the line here, we talked about how it was it was all three of you. But really, the the public interest really centered a lot on you. So many people identified with you, everything from the metal music to the black clothing to the the religions that weren't the norm in the South at the time. And because of, I guess I never really thought about that, but because of the fact that you did testify and you ended up with a lot of camera time during Paradise Lost, yeah, you're you're probably right. It probably did save your life because that's what got the attention and the funding to actually give you an adequate defense during your post-conviction relief. Yeah. And I think it was kind of the, you know, the attitude that I said, you know, even when they asked me, do you want to testify? Do you want to get on the stand? I haven't prepared for this, haven't practiced for this, but it was that same way of thinking, I haven't done anything. I don't have anything to hide. You know, whatever put me up, I'm whatever. It was that, I think, at the time, I think the prosecutors exploited that. I think they used it against me. But I think that attitude 
I think somehow or another it was conveyed to people who saw that footage later that that's how it came across, that this is just a kid who, you know, feels like he doesn't have anything to hide, so why not? And of course, them asking you if you want to testify. I think I think most people's human nature says, "Yeah, I've just listened to them spend the last you know week and a half trying to t- convince people I'm guilty. Let me go defend myself." Absolutely. And especially at 19 years old, so of course you're going to want to get on the stand. And then I'm sure you got a a little bit of a wake up call as to why most defense attorneys don't put their clients on the stand because of cross examination. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. At some point during the trial, did you did you really realize that? My God, they're gonna they're gonna convict me. Or did you still feel like you had a, a fighting chance when it went into deliberations? You know, it, it's weird because it really does come down to another one of those human nature things um, where we always have hope. Like even though intellectually, you know, you see these people, you see what they're doing. I mean, you see the way they're twisting stuff and distorting things, and you realize these people are deliberately trying to kill me. So on an intellectual level, you see that, but you still have that human nature of, you know, for people, say, you know, people that believe in God, that somehow or another, God is going to step in and fix this. Or for people who believe in just, you know, that other people are at their core good, that bad people are a rarity. You think, surely, somehow, some of these people have got to be good, and somebody's going to stop the bad ones from doing that. Whatever it is, wherever it stems from, there's still some element of hope on an emotional level, even if it's not on an intellectual level. So it still does, even though you're prepared for it mentally, you're not prepared for it emotionally. Whenever, you know, it it does, no matter how many times you can sit there and tell yourself what's about to happen, it still hits like an atomic bomb in your psyche whenever you get sentenced to death. And and the whole the whole thing, just from beginning to end, is the most humiliating, degrading experience you can possibly imagine. I mean, imagine being drug out in public and having the most, you know, just intimate details of your life that may not even really mean anything, but they're they're intimate in some way. Drug out dissected in front of the public. And then not even presented as it actually is, but manipulated and, and distorted to make you look like something you're not. It destroys you. You know, honestly, I think it, what I want to say is it destroys your faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it did for a short while for me. It did for maybe a couple of years. It completely and absolutely destroyed my faith in humanity. You know, that what I was talking about a while ago, that most people want to believe on some level that almost everyone is good. I think that got destroyed in me. And I started to look around the world and just see it as nothing but people who would kill me in a heartbeat for really the only reason would be because they want some sense of certainty in the world. You know, that they solved the mystery. They figured out who did this. They don't care that they didn't get the person who actually did it. It's cathartic for them just to kill somebody for this crime. It destroyed my faith in humanity. It eventually started to come back. I think now it is back, maybe more than it was. But that was one of the huge outcomes of that trial for me. One of the things that I dealt with for years afterwards. Well, one of the things that, you know, was, I think, distorted regarding, you know, just who you were to your core and 
were kind of misrepresented were your religious beliefs. So if you want, yeah. if, if you want to take a minute, you know, you were described as as both Wiccan and a Satanist, leaning heavy on the Satan Satanist side at trial. What did you consider yourself, or what what were your? I, I guess a better question is, what were your beliefs at that time as a as a teenager when you were arrested and, and during all this? My first love always, as you know, ever since I was a child, was always ceremonial magic, Western hermeticism. Uh, esotericism. Most people have no idea what that is. You know, they think it's, uh, really, they think it's the exact same thing as Satanism. And the two have not even the slightest resemblance whatsoever. Uh, but the word magic in the South, people don't react very well to that a lot of times. So when I was a teenager, I discovered uh, Wicca, modern neo-paganism. Which, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, what I realized is it's really, really watered-down Western ceremonial magic, done in a way that's really easy to understand, you know, really complicated concepts are, are broken down into, you know, bite-sized pieces that you can use in practical ways, all that sort of thing. So it appealed to me. Would it really appealed to me for a while for, for that reason? And I think if you would have asked me at the time of the trial, that's probably what I would have said that I was. Uh, even though eventually, once I was in prison, you know, I, I eventually just went back to you know, like a more pure, original form of Western ceremonial magic. And, and that's what it is. It's the exact same thing as Eastern tradition, like Buddhism or Taoism or, or Hinduism, that sort of out a prescribed series of practices that lead to a kind of um, change in our consciousness that leads to uh, what in these Eastern traditions they call like an awakening experience or enlightenment in Buddhism. That's the exact same thing that ceremonial magic is designed to bring about, only it does it from a Western perspective. And instead of using, you know, Eastern concepts for, for deities and divinity, like, you know, divas, Ceremonial magic relies heavily on things like uh, archangels, angels, different Hebrew names of God, all of that sort of mimic and, and mirror different parts of our psyche. I don't want to bore the crap out of you. It's one of those things that I go on and on about because it really is kind of the focal point of my life. You know, my spiritual practice is sort of what the rest of my life is, is built around. I've, I've always thought that was supposed to be the case, you know, from, from the time of the child, I always thought your spiritual practice should be the focal point of your life, and everything else is just something you do to support that. And that's still, even even to this day, that's still how I approach what I do. You know, for the most part, I get up at 2, 2 a.m. every single morning, and for the next two hours, I go through my morning routine, practicing ceremonial magic, which is a lot of visualization, a lot of breath work, a lot of uh, energy work routines. But I do it for two hours every single morning from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, the way I look at it, it's like that's, that's my job. Everything else mm-hmm. is kind of secondary to that. Obviously not now, and, and even back then, to label you as a Satan worshiper or a Satanist was certainly not accurate. Did you ever identify as a Satan worshiper or a, or a Satanist or anything like that back then even? No. No. You know, I, I kind of, it's one of those things that I kind of don't even understand the, the concepts behind. You know, this is, I mean, okay, so you say that you believe in, in this 
concept of Satan. That it's this all evil, no good quality, everything bad incarnate. Why, why in the hell would you want to have any sort of truck with something like that? Even if it were a real thing, why would you want that? You know, why would you? I'm a very, very firm believer that energy is contagious. Mm-hmm. I do everything I possibly can to surround myself with things that are positive, with people that are positive, with situations, with books, with movies, with music, that, whatever that inspires me, that lifts me up in some sort of way. I don't see anything inspirational in bad incarnate whatsoever. Things like that, for me, it seems kind of illogical. I don't understand the point of those things either. But what I do, the, the kind of, the, the form of magic that I practice, it's been, you know, it was even nicknamed the yoga of the West. And, and the reason they call yoga yoga, what it means is yoke, you know, to yoke yourself to God, to link yourself to God. That's what yoga means. Mm-hmm. And that's why they call magic the yoga of the West, because it has the exact same aim to link ourselves as much as we possibly can with divinity. You know how in the Catholic Church, uh, they say every time you receive communion, the reason you receive communion every week is because you are, you know, taking in the body of Christ. And the point of it is that every single time you go through this practice, intentionally and deliberately, you become, you know, a little more and a little more and a little more like Christ. And ceremonial magic has the same goal. That's what the point of all the practices, the energy work, the visualization is. It's like every single time you go through these rituals, your your aim is to take a little more divinity into yourself. Sure, and it's and I, I appreciate the explanation with that because even me, I don't you know I don't quite fully understand it, but I think it's important for our listeners to know that you know when they when they see kind of what you're doing now with your social media and Patreon things like that, like when you say magic, you're not pulling rabbits out of hats. No, no, it's absolutely not. It's and the the tradition that I follow relies really, really heavily on and this is, you know, one of the strangest parts of the whole Satanism accusation. It relies really, really strongly on Christian imagery. So, you know, like a hardcore fundamentalist Christian may look at what I do and think, you know, it's still something heathen, it's, you know, not Christian, whatever. But it still uses really, really hardcore Christian iconography. You know, like I was saying, it relies for the most part on things like the Archangel Michael and the Archangel Gabriel and the Archangel Raphael. You know, all of this really hardcore Christian imagery that that we have deep in our psyches because of the culture we were raised in. It utilizes all that sort of stuff. So here it is, while you're doing, you know, meditations on archangels, you've got people around you accusing you of practicing heightenism. Right. Yeah, and it, and it obviously that had a, the lack of understanding of that back in 1993 had a huge effect on you. Um, but one one thing I wanted to circle back around to Damien is you mentioned that you know for a few years after the trial you really kind of lost faith in humanity, but then it was restored. What what was the trigger or, or what process did you go through? What what restored your faith in humanity? Honestly, I think it was. Uh, a combination of things. Um, one, a huge one, would have been Lori, uh, whenever she first started writing to me. And I realized that there, you know, I knew immediately the moment I came into to contact with her, into contact with her, that she was good. And for me, it had gotten to the point where I didn't feel that with anybody anymore. And part of that may have been just because I was in prison. You know, I'm coming in contact 
with people who have, you know, murdered other people or robbed banks or whatever the hell they've done, you know, that they're in there for. So they're not particularly shining paradigms of humanity to begin with. So it may have been that I was just kind of in contact with that kind of energy regularly, which was, you know, kind of amplifying me losing that faith in humanity. But whenever I came into contact with Lori, I knew all the way to the core of my soul, this is a good person. This is someone not like anything that you're surrounded by right now. And it kind of uh, really, the only thing I can compare it to is it made me feel like I was going through the emotional equivalent of physical rehabilitation. Like if you had had, you know, some sort of really traumatic damage to a limb and had to go through, you know, maybe a couple of years of physical rehabilitation to gain use of it. And, and, you know, just the pain of that, it was that kind of emotional pain. It felt like I didn't even realize that I'd been dying emotionally until I started coming back to life. And that started when Lori came in. Another thing was just, uh, you know, whenever we come through horrible traumas in life, usually, you know, we, we resort to patterns, ingrained behaviors. It takes us a little while to get our feet back under us and start being able to focus on something like a spiritual practice again. You know, part of that was probably it for me, too. Like, I, I, you know, couldn't even begin to think about having a spiritual practice for the first couple of years that I was in prison just because I was so shattered. The same way I couldn't, you know, I, by the time I got out of prison, I was doing magic up to eight hours a day. Whenever I got out of prison, that shattered me so bad that I could barely do anything for the next two years again. You know, not even, you know, eight minutes, much less eight hours. Mm-hmm. So, but we do eventually, you know, people adapt. People can get used to damn near anything if you give them enough time. And I think eventually when I had enough time for a little bit of the time to pass and for me to start, you know, at least adapting somewhat to the brutality of the environment that I was in, and you know, it started to sink in what was happening, then I could start thinking about, okay, well, how can I deal with this in a productive way? And that was whenever I started doing things like uh, writing to the Zen priest that I would, you know, eventually get the ordination from and start meditating every day again, uh, start, you know, reading books on spirituality that at least elevated me, you know, mentally and, and kept me looking up instead of focusing on you know, the horror around me, which would have, you know, drugged me down even more. So, it, it, I honestly think it was those two things. It was uh, Lori coming in and then bringing in all the help that she brought in, as well as enough time passing that I could actually start having a real spiritual practice again. And those all had to be important things and an opportunity for you to put your mind elsewhere, because, I mean, you had a pretty rough go of it. In prison, I know when you first got there, and, and you eventually ended up serving a lot of time in solitary confinement, right? Yeah, yeah. Almost, uh, see, I was there for a little over 18 years, and I think about the last almost nine years of that was in solitary confinement. So almost half of my time in prison was in solitary confinement. Was that better or worse than, because I know there was a lot of abuse and things that happened during those first nine years. Was it better for you, for your psyche and having to deal with what you were dealing with when you were in solitary or was it, was it harder? It was a little of both. Over the time that I was in prison, things changed so gradually 
And when I first walked in the door, uh, they used to open everybody's doors at one time and we would all go to the yard together and you would have guys on death row just sitting out in the yard all day long, like playing chess or playing dondos or just, you know, sitting around and you'd have little groups of guys that would get together and read the Bible. They'd have guys that would get together and work out, you know, and, and that would be like an all day thing. And then that would get shut down to, you know, after a few years, you only go out for one hour a day. And then you're not allowed to go out with anybody else anymore. Everybody has to go out solo. And, you know, it was a gradual process until one day they scooped everybody up and put everybody in, you know, solitary confinement cells. So there was elements of that more open life that were beneficial. But again, when I look back on things now, you know, like, in the moment, whenever I was on the stand, it looked like it didn't help me at all. And in fact, it looked like it only hurt me. But in hindsight, how it was one of the things that saved my life. I think maybe being transferred into those solitary confinement cells was also one of those things that to outside people or even to me in the moment, I thought looked horrible, looked bad, but it put me in a situation where, you know, I had no contact with anybody. So I really, really just doubled down and focused everything I had into trying to improve myself and grow in every way I possibly could. So I spent, you know, years just devouring book after book after book after book. Like I said, I got up to eight hours a day of doing ceremonial magic and meditation. I wouldn't have dedicated myself to those things the way that I did if I would have, you know, still been going out to the yard with guys doing push-ups or, or, or whatever the hell we were doing that day. It put me in a situation where it looked detrimental to me, but it really was, in hindsight, again, in my favor because it forced me to develop in ways that have, you know, things like self-discipline that have served me really well in the outside world. Those are the things that have allowed me to, you know, kind of hold my sanity together as I try to transition from almost 20 years in prison to coming out, you know, into the world in 2018. So let's talk a little bit about the lead up to you actually getting to come out into the world. There's always, and, and it's not just your case, any case where someone ends up taking what's known as an Alfred plea all the speculation comes out that, you know, they're, they pled guilty because they're guilty or, you know, the other side will say, well, the prosecution offered it because they know they're innocent. But, but you lived this experience on death row. Can you talk a little bit about, cause we just, in, on one of our previous follow-ups, we talked a little bit about this process and I don't think people understand what it's like. And I'm not that anyone ever can understand unless they're there, but to be <laughs> that person on the inside. And the waiting game that is post-conviction relief, you know, they, they, they'll look at a date and say, well, they, you know, they accepted an Alfred plea in August. If they had just waited four more months, they had a hearing for a new trial. They could have gone home. Yeah. But you know, that's not how it works. So can you talk no, a little bit not. about that, that process yeah. and your decision? One of the things that, that we were, well, one of the main things that I was factoring in in the decision whenever we took the Alfred plea was just because I had seen over and over and over, I had dates that were set for certain things, you know, certain kinds of hearings, what have you. And they would almost always get postponed, almost always get put off. 
pushed off to some other time. Just because you have a court date in the capital, you know, capital murder section of the uh, criminal justice system, just because you have a court date doesn't mean anything. You know, the prosecutor can ask for extension after extension after extension. Even if a judge, even, you know, if your case is finally heard, then the judge can take as long as they want to take to rule on it. Uh, they can sit mm-hmm. there for years if they want to before they rule on it. Then once they do rule on it, whoever doesn't like it, whether it's the defense or whether it's the prosecutor, is going to appeal it. You're talking about another God knows how long. You know, it's, it's not that cut and dry. And, and people think that the legal system is very black and white, very, you know, straight edge, either this is legal or this is illegal. And it's not that way at all. For, you know, especially in capital cases, it, the appeals process, you can find probably two laws on the books that contradict every other law. Right. There are no hard and fast decisions to say that just because they say we're going to have this hearing in four months, that you're going to have that hearing in four months. That's all that, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I think people who think things like that, though, you're not really, it doesn't matter what you say. You're not going to be able to make them understand that because most of them get their legal knowledge from, you know, TV legal dramas or something, mm-hmm. not the actual process. So they're convinced, they are convinced that they know how the system works. And you can't, you know, teach somebody something that they're convinced that they already know. Right. You know, we just witnessed that with one of our, actually it was our season one case two year, two and a half years ago, February of 2016, he had his post-conviction relief hearing and his conviction has been vacated and he's still in prison. It was, it was six months before the ruling and then the appeals and then over a year for the appeals court to rule on it. They upheld the, they upheld the ruling that the conviction be vacated. And of course, the prosecutor is appealing that again to the next higher court. And so here it is two and a half yep. years later. He's still sitting in prison. Yep, exactly. But people believe they know how the system works. They don't. So in, in your case, you, you still had a decision to make. Now, it was probably easier for you than than maybe uh, Jason and Jesse because you were, in fact, on death row. And quite literally, accepting the Alfred plea means for sure you are saving your life. Because of, mm-hmm. you know, eventually they're going to kill you in there. W- was it difficult for you to make that decision to to take the Alfred plea, or or how did how did you end up deciding to go for it and to go home? I, for me, I guess it never really was even a question because by that point I had seen firsthand for almost twenty years how corrupt the system was. I had seen you know the lies. I had seen people trying to keep stuff hidden. I knew. I knew there was no way in hell that these people were going to admit that they were wrong or even worse, that this had been done deliberately because they were just sloppy. I knew that was not going to happen, ever. That these people would kill me before they admitted they made a mistake. I knew that this was the only option that was going to allow them to save enough faith where I was going to be able to get out of this situation alive. So, you know, for me, it was such a split-second decision that it was almost like reflex. You know, you're in the middle of the ocean. Uh, You've been swimming for hours and hours. You're so exhausted, you know you're going to go down in a few minutes. Somebody holds the one and only life preserver that you are ever going to see over your head. You're going to reach for it. You know, and the other part of that is 
people think, you know, well, they're going to get a new trial. Why would they not want to go get a new trial? But, you know, again, this is something that you can't understand. I can't. I mean, I, I've worked with so many people in this position, but I've never lived it. A new trial to someone who was, in fact, wrongfully convicted, where the system completely failed them and they were sent away to death row in your case for something they didn't do. I, I find it stunning sometimes that people can't wrap their brain around why you wouldn't want to go back to another trial to, you know, to, to vindicate yourself and prove yeah. your innocence. Well, yeah, why would you not want to subject yourself to the meat grinder that's already destroyed your life one time? Why would you not want to go back through that again? You know, and, and for all I know, my experiences with judges up until that point were pretty limited to Burnett. So that's what I knew of, of how judges were. Did I want to take a chance on getting another Burnett or somebody even worse than that? You know, I had, I was taking them into all those things into consideration. I knew that I wasn't living in a Perry Mason episode. Right. Uh, this was, this was life or death. And so ultimately you, Took the Alford plea in August of 2011. Right. You got to go home. You had already married Lori, Lori Davis then in, in prison. And, mm -hmm. and so what have the last seven years been like for you? To be honest, the first couple of years were, the first few years were kind of hell, hell on earth. You know, when I was in prison, that was all we were focused on was saving my life, getting me out of prison. So whenever it happened, we, you know, we didn't see the Alford plea coming. That was something that never even occurred to us until it started happening. We thought, just like everybody else did, that we're going to go through this long, drawn-out process. Uh, we're probably going to go through another trial because the prosecutors are never going to admit that they were wrong. So we've got a lot of time on our hands. Probably we're looking at five years. That's mm -hmm. what I was thinking. At the, at the time that I walked out of prison, I was thinking I was probably looking at somewhere in the area of five more years which, honestly, I didn't know if I could do at that point. Uh, I was crumbling. So, when, I mean, the opportunity was a thing that developed within, like, 48 hours, the possibility of that taking place. I was not prepared. Lori was not prepared. No one was prepared for making the transition from prison to life out here in the world. You know, we had no, no one had even considered the toll it was going to take on my psyche of going from, you know, almost a decade in solitary confinement to life on the streets of Manhattan. We were just focused on getting me out. So whenever I did get out, it really was almost exactly like when I first got into prison. You know, when I, when you first walk into prison, it's like an atomic bomb going off inside you just the level of devastation that it has on your psyche, on your emotional life, everything else. Getting out was the same way. I can barely even remember any of the first year that I was out. It was all spent purely in fight or flight mode. Then whenever some of the shock and the numbness, I guess, started to wear off, then uh, I'll never be able to articulate it to someone who's never been through the process. But whenever I got out, you know, I didn't have a penny to my name. Uh, I had absolutely nothing. So I had to start doing immediately whatever I could to make a living or end up homeless. You know, that's one of the things so, that there's a quite a misconception about. Now, there was a lot of big names and celebrities that threw a lot of money 
at your defense and getting and getting you three out. And I think that a lot of people believe that you know. I think when when we spoke when I was when I was in New York with you that you, I think the way you put it was people think that you have a joint checking account with Johnny Depp. Uh, but, exactly, but that's not yeah. the case. I mean, no, I mean, people think that, I, I don't know why people would think this or why they would think I would even want to do this, but it's like they, a lot of people think that I just rely on celebrities to support me. You know, like I'm, I don't know, receiving an allowance from Eddie Vedder or something. I have no idea what, what people are thinking or, or why they think that. You know, I make a living working just like everybody else. I may do, you know, stranger things than other people do. You know, not everybody, uh, their job is to teach classes on ceremonial magic, but it's still, you know, I still work. And I, I don't think I would ever want to be just supported like that. I, I think it would lead to, uh, you know, being soft and weak, honestly. I, and I want to keep growing. I want to keep getting stronger. I want to keep learning new things, doing new things. And, we don't do that unless we have some sort of discomfort stirring us out of the, you know, current situation that we're in. So I think, you know, I don't think I would want that, even if it were true, but it's not. You know, everything that I've had since I've gotten out, either I or Lori and I both together have earned. You know, we, we lived on the road for two straight years, uh, doing speaking engagements and, uh, book signings and talks where we would travel with uh, West of Memphis and do question and answers after screenings. I mean, we really did live out of a suitcase for two straight years, uh, which was not what a man who had just spent almost a decade in solitary confinement needed, you know, living on the road. So that wasn't pleasant at all. I, 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 honest to God, feel like I've really just started enjoying my life in the outside world uh, within the past two years. I feel like it's taken me probably, you know, all of the time up until the past two years to even start coming out of the shock and the trauma and heal up enough where... You know, I can even take in and enjoy little things like sitting outside and, and feeling the wind blow or, uh, you know, the way things smell or, you know, the sun. I could not even enjoy little things like that because I was in such a deeply, I don't even know what to call it, just the internal state that you're in from having to deal with, you know, something of that magnitude. Now, I think I'm probably... For the first time in my entire life at the age of 43, happy, really happy. I love my life. I love what I'm doing. You know, just like everybody else, I have things that I want to improve, ways I want to keep moving and growing. But at the same time, it's not like a source of anxiety for me now. I mm -hmm. am sort of existing in a state where I am now finally enjoying the process of living instead of always, you know, looking at some goal somewhere down the road and sort of missing all of life that blurs by while I race towards that point. Now for me, it's for the first time ever. And, and honestly, it really is an amazing feeling to, to, to feel this, to just enjoy normal things. For more information about Damien and the work that he's doing, 
check out his new website, DamienEccles.com. On the site, you can check out Damien's work and subscribe to his mailing list. And with this interview, we're coming up on our final episode before our mid-season break of Season 5, The Forgotten Three. Next week, we will conclude our investigation into the investigation in Episode 533. Case closed on the West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.